Welcome back to The Re-Education. Our topic today is Rethinking Watergate, and my guest is historian and New York University professor Tim Naftali. His whispered words helped topple a president, but for three decades, Mark Felt remained in the shadows, the unknown answer to the nation's most enduring political mystery, who was Deep Throat. Felt was second in command at the FBI in the early 70s, when the press began asking questions about the Watergate break-in. We just heard the news report of the death of Deep Throat, the key source for Woodward and Bernstein's explosive investigative series that helped bring down Richard Nixon. Today, this man, Mark Felt, is generally considered a dissident hero. He violated his oath as a senior FBI official by leaking details of an ongoing investigation to the press, but he did this for a more noble cause, to expose a corrupt president. Here is a clip from a 2017 movie starring Liam Neeson about Felt's role in the Watergate scandal. Here's what we know. The men who broke into the Watergate are not the end of this thing, but the beginning. There are no more interviews with White House people without permission. What? We put the investigation to bed in two days. The director of the FBI ordered the FBI to stop its own investigation. The nation tonight is in the midst of what may be the most critical constitutional crisis in its history. The White House has no authority over the FBI. We can at all. All this truth must be terrifying to you. No one can stop the driving force of an FBI investigation. The conventional wisdom is correct here, up to a point. Nixon abused his power when he deployed retired FBI and CIA officers to spy on his opposition. Initially, these so-called plumbers were formed to find leakers in his administration. They bugged reporters that Nixon didn't like. They rummaged through the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, and he, of course, was the guy who gave the New York Times a secret history of the Vietnam War, known as the Pentagon Papers. And Nixon's White House unleashed these plumbers on the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate complex, hence the name of the scandal. This was part of a pattern. Like his predecessor, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Richard Nixon believed he had the authority and right as president to use the surveillance state against his political enemies in the name of national security. Nixon's paranoia and situational ethics made him so dangerous that at one point the FBI's J. Edgar Hoover, a man who also had no compunction about using the surveillance state against his enemies, refused a Nixon plan to coordinate eavesdropping capabilities of the National Security Agency, the CIA, and the U.S. Army with the Bureau's own domestic spying operations. Hoover said no. Now, all of that said, the story that Mark felt was a straight-arrow G-man who followed his conscience when his country needed him most is a convenient myth. It's BS. Because it's largely forgotten today, but before 2005 when Mark Felt revealed himself in an article for Vanity Fair that he was, in fact, Deep Throat, Mark Felt was one of the last defenders of the Hoover era's domestic eavesdropping and political warfare agenda. He was, along with Edward Miller, the first and only senior FBI officials to be indicted by the Justice Department. His crime was knowingly violating the Fourth Amendment rights of the Weather Underground. Here he is, copping to ordering the Code Red, as it were, on Face the Nation in 1975. 
Well, may I ask you about that? Do, do you think, let's say that the weathermen or another group had no foreign connections and you knew that, but they were bombers. Would you say that the FBI people in your position should have the authority to authorize break-ins into their premises? I think so, yes. Yes. Well, Mr. Fell, what does this do to the Fourth Amendment, which protects well, uh, the people from unreasonable searches? Why not look at the Ninth Amendment, which says that nothing in any of the other amendments shall in any way prejudice the rights of the people as a whole. And it's, it's a question of the greater good. So you're arguing that people like in your position... Somebody has to take the responsibility. ...to violate the rights of a few to safeguard the rights of the whole. I think you'd put it that way, yes. As we discussed in an earlier show, the Weather Underground in the early 1970s was a domestic terrorist organization, no doubt about it. And although they did not seek to kill civilians in their bombings, they were responsible for a series of them against university labs, Congress, and the Pentagon. There is a fair argument that Weather Underground was a legitimate target for FBI surveillance. It's an argument, by the way, that I would agree on. My issue here with Felt is not that he spied on a bunch of lunatic bombers who wanted a socialist revolution in America. Rather, it's that he lied about it, and he did so on his own authority without even informing the Justice Department. Also, Mark Felt didn't just spy on members of the Weather Underground. He spied on their relatives and friends whose only crime was knowing or being related to domestic radicals. To quote Jennifer Dorn, the sister of Weather Underground leader Bernadette Dorn, Mark Felt is no hero. At the same time that he was whistleblowing against Nixon, he was authorizing FBI agents to break into my apartment. It was outrageous, end of quote. She said this, by the way, to the Washington Post in 2005 after Mark Felt exposed himself as deep threat. Mark Felt also lied to his own institution about what he did in this eavesdropping and break-ins. He lied to FBI Director Clarence Kelly, according to Tim Weiner's History of the FBI, Enemies, good book, I recommend it, when he briefed him on the Bureau's practice of wiretaps and break-ins, which Kelly then retold, retailed rather to the press and Congress. The official line in the early 1970s was that, the FBI stopped warrantless bugging and break-ins in 1966 after Hoover gave an order to phase out the practice known sometimes as quote-unquote black bag jobs. Mark Felt finally came clean on this when he was being investigated for this kind of snooping by the Justice Department. He surprised U.S. attorneys in grand jury testimony when he acknowledged that he had in fact authorized break-ins and surveillance against Weather Underground and a Palestinian organization in Dallas, Texas. He said he was doing so on the order of acting FBI Director Pat Gray, who was a Nixon loyalist who was appointed interim director after Hoover died in his sleep in 1972. I should say Pat Gray initially tried to stymie the FBI's Watergate investigation, but the FBI agents investigating that crime, with Mark Felt's support, by the way, resisted Pat Gray, and they ended up doing it anyway. Should also be said here that Mark Felt also lied again and again and again about his role in Watergate and leaking Watergate to the Washington Post. In a personal note to Director Kelly, Felt complained to his old friend how unfair it was that he was a suspected leaker and he insisted that he was not the source for the Post's Watergate stories. He also said he wasn't the source for a series of stories in the New York Times about the FBI's past practices of warrantless surveillance, both of which were lies. 
Mark felt even at one point when he was still at the FBI as the number two man there as the associate director, ordered an investigation to find who was the leaker of the Watergate stuff to the Washington Post, which he conveniently led. So, you know, tip of the hat in a kind of, you know, to at least his sort of Machiavellian cunning in that respect. Anyway, all of this matters because Mark Felt's authorization of illegal surveillance is a big reason that Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, two Weather Underground leaders, had second acts after their fugitive years. If he hadn't given that order, Dorn and Ayers today would almost certainly be federal inmates instead of aging college professors. And Chesa Bodine, who they raised after Chesa Bodine's biological parents, were sent to the clink for their role in an armed robbery. Listen to our episode on Chesa Bodine from a few months ago. Would end up becoming the disastrous district attorney in San Francisco there's a very good chance that Chesa Bodine would not have had the opportunities that he did going to Yale Law School and all of that had Mark Felt not violated the civil rights of his adopted parents, Dorn and Ayers. Something to keep in mind. Mark Felt also, by the way, got off relatively easy, all things being equal. Mark Felt was found guilty in a jury trial in 1981, but the judge fined him only $8,500 and he got no jail time. A few months after the verdict, President Ronald Reagan pardoned Felt and Miller. This is from Pardon Their Convictions, Reagan wrote, Rue out of their good faith belief that their actions were necessary to preserve the security interests of our country. The record demonstrates that they acted not with criminal intent, but in the belief that they had grants of authority reaching to the highest levels of the government. In fairness, there really is something to that. At Felt's trial, former Democratic attorneys general like Nicholas Katzenbach testified in Felt's defense for many years from the 1930s through probably, you could say, the end of the 1960s. U.S. courts in general allowed wiretapping for national security interests so long as the warrantless taps were not publicized. On the other hand, the prosecution also convinced a jury in this trial that Felt and Miller had no higher-up approval from the Justice Department to tap U.S. citizens in the Weather Underground investigation. It's very important because it wasn't just people that we would identify as, like, you know, keynotes of a domestic terrorist organization. It was, again, relatives, friends, neighbors of the Weather Underground who also had their privacy violated. Now, a delicious irony in this whole affair is that Richard Nixon himself appeared at Mark Felt's trial as a witness for his defense. After Felt was pardoned, Nixon even sent him a bottle of champagne with the note, Justice Prevails. Think about that. Nixon helped out the man who destroyed him. And what's even weirder is that we know from Nixon's own Watergate tapes that the former president was at the very least told that Felt was likely the leaker to the Post, his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman. Before the 1972 election, I might add, briefed Richard Nixon, president, saying he had reason to believe that Felt was the source of the Washington Post. Now, I don't think Haldeman had proof, and I would play this tape, but it's such poor quality, I decided against it. But the point here is that Nixon had reason, and Nixon's White House, uh, John Dean, his former general counsel, also suspected it was Felt. So it's entirely reasonable to think that Nixon believed that Mark Felt was the one who was kind of dripping out all these details from the Watergate investigation of the Washington Post. And yet, 
in that moment, several years after, you know, Nixon had left office and everything else like that, Nixon kind of, I guess you could say, believed in the principle that the executive in our government should have the authority to spy on domestic radicals. And he supported, you know, kind of for principled reasons what Felt was doing. Anyway, I bring all of this up because of what it means today as we look at the FBI 50 years after Hoover died in office. The shadow of Watergate still looms large in some of the texts, for example, that were published between the FBI Deputy Counterintelligence Chief Peter Strzok and FBI lawyer Lisa Page in 2017, they would discuss how they were reading up on Watergate and the history of Watergate after Donald Trump won the election in 2016. Carl Bernstein, Bob Woodward's reporting partner, was a frequent fixture on cable news in those first years of the Trump presidency. It's certainly true that no Republican president was as hated as Nixon until Trump came along, and it's also true that the FBI played a role in weakening both Trump and Nixon. But all of that said, the Nixon-Trump analogy is deeply flawed. Nixon used the surveillance state against his political enemies. Trump was the victim of the surveillance state, especially after he won an election everyone assumed he would lose. And specifically, Trump's political opponent, the Hillary Clinton campaign fed the FBI garbage leads in the hopes of ginning up investigations into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. And while Trump was wrong to say that Trump Tower was, you know, tapped or bugged or whatever in 2017 when he said that, his initial claims that the, or at least the, the point that he was trying to make is that the FBI had spied on his campaign in 2016 with largely correct. The FBI did send informants to surreptitiously record some of Trump's campaign aides, including Michael Flynn, who was briefly his national security advisor. And unlike the Watergate investigation, the FBI probe of Trump and Russia never found evidence for a, the conspiracy that was promised in such bated breath in the press and particularly on cable news in the first two and a half years of his presidency. So it matters how we view Mark Felt today. A few journalists like Tim Weiner and Max Holland have argued, in my view, very persuasively that Felt was mainly driven by ambition and pique and not out of a sense of honor. Felt was bitter that he was not asked to be the acting director after J. Edgar Hoover died. Mark Felt wanted to undermine Pat Gray, who was, if you remember, the Nixon loyalist who was the interim director. So eventually, Nixon would give the director's job to him. And what better way to undermine a new director of the FBI than to leak damaging information about the current president that was generated by an FBI investigation? So in light of that, let's conduct a little bit of a thought experiment. Suppose the FBI was leaking information about an ongoing investigation into a popular president like Barack Obama or Ronald Reagan, as opposed to the unlikable and unethical Richard Nixon or for that matter, Donald Trump. Would the FBI leakers still be seen as heroic dissidents, or might many observers conclude that the Bureau was overstepping its authority and undermining our democracy? As my guest Tim Naftali says in my conversation with him today, modern intelligence scandals are often the result of the CIA or the FBI abusing their authority at the direction of a president. And the presidents usually get off, but the president shouldn't get off. It's a very important point that Tim makes in our conversation. But I would add that occasionally there are also intelligence scandals when the institutions themselves undermine a president out of pettiness or self-preservation. That's what happened after Trump won the election in 2016. The FBI, along with the press and the Democratic Party, acted as if Donald Trump was the second coming of Richard Nixon. 
and senior officials at the Bureau used the FBI's vast power to weaken Donald Trump. They acted like Mark Felt in 1972. The only difference was that unlike 1972, Trump had nothing to do with the cyber break-in of the Democratic Party's computers. The anonymous leakers of 2017 and 2018 were not exposing a corrupt president. They were framing a duly elected one. Now, a word from our sponsor. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. Well, listeners, today on The Education, we are very fortunate to have my friend Tim Naftali. He is a historian focusing on the Cold War era of U.S. kind of great power issues. He's a professor at New York University and the first director of the Nixon Library. Tim, thank you so much for coming on The Reeducation. My pleasure, Eli. Great to be here. So I brought you on because this is a topic that I think we are both very interested in, which is Watergate, its effect on the FBI, and kind of what, 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 how we should think about it 50 years later. Yeah. So let's start with some basics. How do you understand this fundamental question of, is it fair to say that Woodward and Bernstein took down Richard Nixon or that their main, one of their most important sources, the associate director of the FBI, Mark Felt, who was known as Deep Throat, took down Nixon? That's my first question. Since we're, we're going to, these are, these are complicated issues, are great, great sure. questions. And since one of the things I'm going to try to do with you today is to help your listeners separate fact from fiction. I want to I want to make one little correction to something you said because mm. Hugh Hewitt would be very upset because I was not the first director of the Nixon Library. The first, I was the, yeah. I was the first federal director. The Nixon Library was a private institution. It was established in 1990, and then in the early 2000s, the Nixon family decided, for whatever reason, that they wanted the federal government to take over the library and make it into a presidential library. And I was the, if you will, the first Fed, the first federal director. So, and I think okay. Hugh Hewitt may be considered the very first director of the library back in 1990 or 91. Hugh was like an aide to Nixon in retirement, right? Yes. Yes. So, but let's get to this. This is really, really important, which is that we use the term taking down a president or okay. So, right. Well, from my point of view, and, and there's, there's no definitive, there's some wonderful work on Watergate, and I had to learn 
way more about Watergate than I ever really wanted to because I curated the library's Watergate exhibit, uh, one of the one of the elements of the handover from the private Nixon Foundation to the federal government was that the library's uh, museum had a Watergate exhibit and it had to be changed. It had to be changed to reflect literature and data about Watergate that was not in the original exhibit. The original exhibit had been edited by Richard Nixon himself. Okay, so I would argue <laughs> that, yes, so in, I, I had the unusual challenge of revising Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon in many ways brought himself down in the sense that it's not just because of his behavior, but because he taped. And I've argued and will argue here with you and we can chat about this, that had Richard Nixon not taped himself, not had a sound activated taping system, that Richard Nixon very likely would have finished the second term. I think the media play a very important role. There's no question that Woodward and Bernstein kept the story alive. But their work on this issue does not change the 1972 election, which Nixon wins in a landslide. I think that the biggest contribution that Woodward and Bernstein make is they lay the groundwork for the Senate Watergate investigation, which is a bipartisan investigation, which was responsible for finding out about the taping system. It was the venue that John Dean would use to lay out the first description of Richard Nixon as being part of the cover-up and a lot of other details that would change the American public's view of Nixon, a man who had just been elected in a landslide. That comes as a result of the Senate Watergate investigation. And so the story of what Richard Nixon sort of taking down, if you will, is mm. a complex story with phases. Woodward and Bernstein are essential to understanding the first phase and by extension, deep throw. Mark Felt was important. But for the final story, you, you have to understand the role the Senate played and right. you have to understand the role Nixon himself plays because unlike Trump in the first impeachment, Nixon decides he can't stonewall and doesn't fully stonewall. What he wants to do is manipulate the process, but he hands over the tapes. limited hangout. The limited hangout, which includes handing over tapes. We can get to that a little later. So I would say that Richard Nixon is a key reason why Richard Nixon's second term ends abruptly with his resignation. Okay, just a slight pushback, and I do this with great trepidation. That's okay. Early, right after the break-in in 1972 at the Watergate complex where the Democratic National Committee is, there is a call from the White House, I believe it's Haldeman or Ehrlichman, to whoever was sort of the guy who was there and said, I need you to stop the investigation. And it it's, under, it's come out later that Mark Felt says the White House can't stop an FBI investigation. So the decision for the FBI to continue to dig plays an important role in the undoing. No? Oh, it, it definitely does. But, but, but it's, it's unfair to the FBI heroes who are at a much lower level to say it's Mark right. because of Mark Felt. I mean, what you have is a, a, you haven't- Oh, so you're FBI, saying it was just the guys who said, no, 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 you can't tell no, us to stop. FBI, and then those were just the line investigators. We, the line investigators, they 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 set up a, an FBI, the SFBI set up a Watergate task force. And these guys, were, I think all men at the time, were pushing hard to continue the investigation of things that were found either 
on the on the person of the persons of the burglars or in their hotel room. And one of the things that was found was was, was were checks, checks that led to bank accounts, which led to an investigation in Mexico and one in Minnesota. And and this is the this is the committee to reelect the president. And the, the thing that the White House understood from the get go that was very dangerous was for the FBI to figure out that monies that were donated to the president's reelection committee found their way to the burglars. So Nixon wanted Nixon and Haldeman wanted to stop that investigation, and there was a lot of anger within the FBI when L. Patrick Gray, who was the president's choice. He was the designee to replace Hoover. Hoover had died in May of 1972, and we're talking about the summer right. of 72 right now. Gray had put a, a, a stop on these investigations because the FBI had told him that it might, in, sorry, the CIA had told him the CIA might be involved. And the CIA did that at the request of the White House. So there's a brief moment when the, the White House is able and, to And this is the CIA director slow. then is what, Vernon Walters, right? It's Walters, yes. And so anyway, yeah, this who is, is Nixon's let me, guy. Let, 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 just to make this as, as yeah. straightforward as possible, because I'm assuming most of your listeners are, are not Watergate nerds. The, the White House from the beginning, I mean, from the moment Nixon learns, and Haldeman is his chief of staff, learn about the apprehension of the burglars at the Watergate. From the beginning, the White House knows it has a problem. We've we've never found evidence that Richard Nixon himself knew in advance that there would be an attempt to break into the DNC, the Democratic National Committee headquarters. But we know that he knew that there was a secret espionage unit that was built for the committee to reelect. We know this. And Haldeman, so, so, but Nixon doesn't necessarily know the targets. We've never found evidence that he chose the targets. It's very likely Haldeman knew the targets, but in any case, but once the, once the Washington police arrested these fellows, the, the White House knew it had a problem. One of these guys was E. Howard Hunt and Nixon knew who E. Howard Hunt was because Nixon had, had approved his recruitment for something called the Plumbers in 1971, the group that was put together to staunch leaks, that's why they were called plumbers, but also to discredit Daniel Ellsberg after Ellsberg turns over the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. So Nixon knows who E. Howard Hunt is. And, and from the beginning, he knows he, that there has to be a cover-up because he doesn't want the FBI, and by extension, the American people, and his own Justice Department, to know that a White House aide, E. Howard Hunt, whom he participated in choosing is involved in the break-in. So from the get-go, Nixon is involved in the cover-up. This is not somebody else's right. idea. And this cover-up starts to get more and more complicated, and it requires Nixon to use one U.S. institution against another. One of the, one of the most interesting elements for me as someone who, I mean, among the many things that I've studied avidly, I, I have a low boredom threshold. I, I love studying new puzzles. But one of the puzzles I've always been interested in is the, the concept of a, of, of a secret government or a, a deep state, which, right. and, and the thing about Watergate is it proves that a deep state doesn't exist. If you want evidence that there, there's no deep state, it's the Watergate story. Because Nixon 
all right, is unhappy with the fact that he can't get the FBI to break the law by, by 1971. J. Edgar Hoover has evolved. Well, I want to, I, we, okay. We're definitely going to get into this. But, but, but the thing about... Because, so, so in yeah. 19, 1972, Nixon wants to get the elements of the intelligence community to commit crimes to help him politically. And, and, and that's what the FBI officers at the working level and, and, and higher up Mark Feld don't want to have happen. They don't want the FBI to participate in a crime in the United States. And Nixon, it, it okay. got to for Nixon. Now you get into something here and I just want to make a note of it. The cliche that came out of Watergate is it's not the cover-up. It's not the crime. It's the cover-up. BS. Yeah. Bullshit. The yeah. crime is really bad. The, the br, former you having a president or his campaign or his closest aides hire former FBI and former CIA people to spy on your political opposition is atrocious. It's atrocious. And by the way, where do you think that trope came from? Who do you think was pushing the line? It's not the crime is the cover up. Well, I mean, was Richard it Nixon, Nixon or? Yeah, it was yeah, Nixon. Yeah, right. Because, because right. Nixon, that was Nixon's defense, when it became clear that, you know, he, he was not going to be able to defend himself the way by building a wall and, 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 and isolating himself from this completely. He began to come up with, with explanations where he said that he was a victim of a cover-up that he participated in, but it had a good motive. The motive was to protect his good old friend, John Mitchell, who was head of the committee to reelect, who had been his attorney general. And, you know, stupid me, Nixon says, I just wanted to help him. He had a difficult wife. Their marriage was falling apart. He wasn't focused in the summer. And you know what? I just needed to help one of my guys. It was essential to the Nixon second explanation of himself is this idea that it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Because Nixon never okay, wanted but I wanna... the crimes, any of them that he committed. Okay. Of, of, okay. And I, and let me say, I accept all of that. However, I will just maybe, maybe sort of the steel man Nixon here for a second. There's another argument, which Nixon doesn't really make, but people who work for Nixon, like Bill Sapphire made, which is, come on, Lyndon Johnson did this. FDR did versions of this. The Kennedys did this. I mean, you can argue even though I think that there's a lot of evidence that Nixon were through Henry Kissinger was telling, you know, the, the South Vietnamese at the Paris peace conference, not to take a deal and to wait for, you know, wait for him. But the way that Johnson, Lyndon, president Johnson knew about that was probably because he had intelligence, you know, on Nixon's campaign. And there were lots of other people who Johnson also loved to use the FBI in some ways, at times, that were political, even though they were often kind of couching like I'm going after radicals or communists or things like that. I think it's really important that we not always tell the history of presidents as a morality play. That Fair enough. Absolutely. I think that Lyndon Johnson's use of the FBI against the Mississippi Freedom group at the 64 campaign, uh, 64 convention was terrible. I think that the Kennedys, I'm writing a book about Kennedy and I will go into th these issues because I 
I believe it's important to talk about how presidents misuse power as much as they use it. The, the Kennedy's use of the FBI to scare CEOs of the steel industry in, 19, in, in 1962 during the steel crisis was wrong. I, I think monitoring that, Martin Luther King under Martin, Kennedy. Uh, yes, it was Robert Kennedy. Who maybe started, there was a job. I mean, I don't know this. It's a complicated story. They're, they're actually, yes. I, I, I will go into some detail about it, but later, mm-hmm. maybe on your podcast anytime. Let me oh, just, be great. But let, but let's talk about this, which is, I think it's really important for, for listeners. At least I think so as a citizen of this country. Mm-hmm. I don't think you want any president, regardless of whether you agree with them politically or not, to abuse power. And I don't yep. think that the fact that, that the president you liked abused power excuses a president that you didn't like abused power or vice versa. I think it's a bad okay. thing for the entire system that presidents have been able to abuse power. What, will, what makes Nixon, and I talked to a lot of them, and what makes a lot of President Nixon's admirers and former members of his team angry is that he suffered the political death penalty for things that they felt others had survived politically, but made them angry. But it doesn't take away from the fact that he shouldn't have done them. The fact that Kennedy and Johnson, and I would argue that, look, what they did was problematic. I would argue that Nixon took to to a new level. And then I would argue that Trump took it even to an even higher level uh, of malfeasance. But but the point is, just because... Well, I mean, Trump argue, didn't do what... Hold on, wait a second. I, I, Trump did lots of bad things, but not in the same... T- Trump wasn't using the apparatus of the surveillance state against his political opponents. That's not what... I mean, you, no, there's I, bad things that Trump did, but he didn't do that. I'm putting... I'm, if I'm, anything, you could argue the apparatus of, this, of, the, of the surveillance state was used against him. No, I, I want to make clear that what I'm talking about is is Trump and January 6th. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, then no, then no, we no, agree. No, January 6th is atrocious. No, 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 no but I, because I think in my own assessment of the pres- of Nixon versus Trump, it's January 6th that, that for me changed my mind and, and put Trump in a different category because it's, that's what I'm talking about. Not the use of the surveillance state. By the way, just as a, an aside, sort of in, in, in the, in the Nixon column, you could argue Nixon had a very, very good case in 1960 that there were that that the that the the vote was rigged by lots of people on the Kennedy side. And he had aides who came to him and said, you should contest it. And he decided he wouldn't even do that, even though it was a far better case in 1960, believe me, than 19, than 2020. But he said it would be too too harmful to the country to even challenge it, even though he was probably in the right in 1960s, at least when it came to Chicago and West Virginia. Well, I think I think Richard Nixon, and this also differentiates him from Trump. Richard Nixon, President Trump, Richard Nixon believed in institutions. He he understood American history, and he saw himself as part of American history. He admired presidents before him. He didn't see himself as a singular president. And therefore, he didn't want to destroy the institutions that he participated in. I mean, let's not forget that in the summer of 1974, Richard Nixon did a very patriotic thing, which he didn't necessarily have to do, which was not to contest the Supreme Court decision, U.S. v. Nixon, that he lost. And he had to turn over, it first of all, limited the use of executive privilege and required that he tape, turn over tapes that were necessary in a criminal trial. 
those who've studied our history know that the founders actually didn't make clear that the Supreme Court is the last word on constitutional authority. The founders thought the president himself would, could also weigh in. And indeed, the use of the veto for our first presidents was used only when presidents disagreed with the constitutionality of laws passed by Congress. So, so now, of course, by the 20th century, the Supreme Court was viewed as the last word, but, but Nixon could have had an argument saying, I disagree. And we know that- And Nixon, I will, if I, yeah. I and, and, and one more in Nixon's favor, this is oddly becoming, you know, we, we, we're gonna take our shots here at, at Richard Nixon, but you could argue that his concern about the leak of the Pentagon Papers, which as a journalist, I really support because I think it was important for the American people to know the, the real history of America's involvement in Vietnam. But that was something that was terribly embarrassing for his the, the two previous presidents, Kennedy and Johnson, wasn't really that bad for Nixon. There's There's a famous tape of him talking to Hoover about this, where Hoover says, you're not touched by any of this stuff. And there was a sense, even though it led to the plumbers and it led to all this extra constitutionality and all the harassment of Daniel Ellsberg and all that's bad, but Nixon was doing it in a kind of principle and that he didn't think that this kind of classified secret history should be disclosed to the public. And even though it was damaging to, to, to Democratic presidents before him, he was going to kind of prosecute this to the fullest extent of the law. I'm no? going to push back a little bit, okay. Eli, because in the beginning, Initially, Nixon is not all that agitated by the uh, by the leak. What agitates him is that it 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 pushes Trisha off of the central part of the front page because Trisha Nixon Cox had just gotten married at the White House. Uh, but 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 what what happens is that I think that President Nixon gets angrier and angrier for two reasons. One, it's the lionization of Daniel Ellsberg in the press and the fact that he emerges okay. as a hero. And the other is the sense that Ellsberg has allies in Nixon's government and that he thinks that, that Ellsberg has access to real secrets, not old secrets, not historical secrets, but actual secrets. Uh, and part of it is that Ellsberg was a student of Henry Kissinger's at Harvard. And, 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 and Kissinger is very nervous about being viewed as disloyal to Nixon which is why he right. plays a role in the wiretapping. So I think it goes over the top on it, right? Absolutely, because you know he's very insecure. He knows that Nixon is an anti-Semite. Right. He knows that he had worked for, he had helped in a way the Kennedy administration. I mean, Henry Kissinger's been around so long that he was an advisor on the Berlin crisis of 1961. And Kennedy and Nixon knows that then Kissinger was an, was an ally of Nelson Rockefeller, a liberal Republican who was a political opponent of Richard Nixon's. So, so Kissinger, yeah, well, no. yes and no, right? I mean, Rockefeller, well, they come to Rockefeller was was a political opponent of Nixon, but Nixon wasn't like Reagan. He wasn't representing the Goldwater side of the party. Nixon was perfectly fine as a very what we. I mean, Nixon would be kind of almost a liberal today in that he creates the you know EPA and yeah. I'm not, not I'm not saying that yeah. they have deep ideological. Disagreements. Right. They they had ambitions, and their ambitions. Oh, I know. Were I see what you're, what you're saying is that like there were reasons why Kissinger had to earn the trust of they had, the had to earn the trust. So anyway, my my point is that there's there's a lot going on, and finally, Nixon gets really angry because 
the, the permanent government or the standard government or the traditional government is not acting the way he'd like. For example, he has a secretary of defense named Mel Laird. And he tells Mel Laird, investigate this. Find out where were all the copies of the Pentagon Papers. Who held them? And Mel Laird slow walks it. He doesn't want to get involved. He does not want the Pentagon to get involved in this domestic matter. He, he knows from having been years in Congress that this is just a loser for the Pentagon to get involved in this sort of thing. And he slow right. walks. And, it, and you can hear Nixon's anger. get He's just so frustrated. And he can't get the right. FBI to do what he wants them to do. He wants the FBI to, to work harder, find out, you know, was Ellsberg part of some kind of communist conspiracy? And the FBI is not moving fast enough. And so right, what right. he have is he gets frustrated because the U.S. intelligence community, whether it's military or civilian, both sides, is not acting uh, with, the, with the anger and urgency that he would like. And that's what leads Nixon to create a water, a White House espionage unit. I see. What, I, that, that's, and that's an excellent point. So let's, I want to, like, one more point on Nixon, and then I want to get into some of the FBI stuff. There's an argument that, at least when it came to dirty tricks in the 1972 election, that it was, a, it, in some ways, I, I know that as an historian, we're never supposed to do any of this, but so, if you want to get into the psychology of Richard Nixon, oh. if he only had a little bit more self-confidence, he would never have gotten into this pickle, because he did win in a landslide. He was cruising. The Democratic Party was totally imploding at this point. The, you know, I mean, this is after 68, where, you know, you had the disastrous Democratic convention. And I think there was an element that the paranoia of Nixon, the sense that Nixon always felt that he would never be accepted by the establishment, led him to think that the oh, I need to do this because they do this to me. I need to do the dirty tricks because this is what Johnson did. This is what, you know, they Kennedy cheated me out of the election in 60 and all this other stuff. And that builds up so that he does this crazy, extra legal, horrible stuff in 72 against the Democrats when he didn't need to do any of it because he probably would have walked away with it if he just played it straight. Well, oh, there's no question. And I, I don't mind descending into a little discussion of psychology because after listening to so many Nixon tapes, I, I, I have a feeling I know <laughs> right. some, some, some part of the, the psychological story. A couple of points I want to make. The first is that people in Nixon campaigns knew that Nixon would not be loved as a candidate. These are, I'm talking about right. Republican, Republican operatives. And I remember Jeb Magruder, whom I interviewed for the library, told me this and made perfect sense. And it, it, it aligned, aligned with some other things I'd read and some other oral histories, oral histories I did. But Nixon as a candidate was not a candidate that wore particularly well. You know, there's some candidates mm -hmm. that you get them closer to the public and you're going to see an increase in support. Nixon basically started with the support he was going to end with in a campaign. And, and Nixon knew this. And, and so Nixon was very, he was in awe and also jealous of candidates who had charisma who had that right. wow factor. So he was in awe of John F. Kennedy. He was in right. awe of Ronald Reagan, though he thought Reagan was not a smart man, but he knew that Reagan had that something. He trashed Reagan. Trashy, go, absolutely. But he didn't trash yeah. Reagan's poli po political power. Fair enough, yeah, right. And this man who was completely forgotten, but was, was 
Richard Nixon's choice for a future president, John Connolly, who is a former Democrat. Oh, yeah, yeah, of Texas, of course. Uh, okay, so Nixon, so Nixon had this insecurity about really attractive class presidents. You know, he would be <laughs> class president by working harder than anybody else, by putting together right. a coalition, but he knew that no one was going to vote for him because of the speech that he gave at the student assembly. And that he knew. So he had a deep sense of his limitations as a candidate. So that's part of this story. Okay. And, and that meant that Nixon in 1972, actually in late 71, wanted this espionage unit for his reelection campaign. And in early 72, was nervous about his reelection. Now, if you look at the polls in early 72, it's pretty close with a guy named, also forgotten, Senator Muskie, Edmund Muskie of Maine, right. who was thought to be the likely Democratic nominee. In any case, the point is Nixon gets nervous. So his dirty tricks, he thinks he needs because he always thinks the other side is going to have a more charismatic. Um, okay, leader. that's really and, helpful. And, and the other thing is, something that Billy Graham, Reverend Graham said, and Reverend Graham probably knew more American leaders of both parties, I think, than anybody of his era. Because Billy Graham was, was in, in some ways America's pastor, but he was right. certainly the pastor of the White House for Republicans and Democrats alike. That's and right. what Billy Graham said about Nixon was that Nixon was a victim of situational ethics. And what that means is that, you know, there was no, he didn't have a moral compass in the end. There was no true north. He did what he felt he could right. do. And he believed that every president was captured by situational ethics. Nixon thought that he was like every other president when he did That's what right. he felt was necessary to stay in power. He never... He didn't feel he was doing anything that any other president hadn't done. Now, what made him different from Trump in, is that he cared about getting caught. Nixon had a sense of shame. And, you can, and if you want to know that, if you want to see it dramatically displayed, his final speech, you can tell this man feels shame, but he feels shame that he got caught. The shame doesn't necessarily deter him from doing these things. He thinks he has a right to. He thinks presidents can do it, but it, he does have a, a, a moral sense of what he- Well, he certainly, but he's similar to Trump in that both Trump and Nixon believed, and you could, you, can, you could actually argue maybe the Clintons had the same thing, that they believed that the other guys were just as dirty and that they would be, you know, unilaterally disarming if they didn't. I don't, I, 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 there's no question that that's what Nixon thought. There's no- out in my mind. I mean, Trump probably the Clinton, Trump, Trump says probably it. the Clinton probably the whole discussion of the great white right wing conspiracy. So that gives you a sense of it. Yeah, yeah. In terms of Trump, I, again, I'm not sure because President Trump never showed a deep understanding of what his predecessors had done. I, I, oh, I fair I, enough. I've yeah. often felt that the world he brought to Washington was the amoral world of New York real estate. That he, yeah. unlike, unlike Nixon who had been saturated, had been marinated in the Washington community and had a sense of the amorality of the Washington community. I think what Trump does is he projects on Washington, a New York. And, and I would argue that though 
immorality continues in Washington, Washington had changed mm. after, after Nixon. Nixon, the whole Nixon experience is a, it's a, a heart attack for the Washington community that does lead to reforms. I'm not saying that politicians, you know, find religion, but well, some do, but, but I'm not saying that, that suddenly everybody has a moral compass, but, and that ambition doesn't, isn't as important afterwards as before, but rules come in place and there are norms that arise that, that didn't exist before. And I think President Trump didn't know about those norms because I don't think he knew anything about the Washington community. That's a very fair point. Now, now let's get to the FBI part of this. So let's talk for a second about Hoover. In 1966, Hoover famously sort of senses where the wind's blowing and he says, all right, no more black bag jobs, no more warrantless surveillance. And this becomes the official line for the FBI for the next 10 years that they did it before and they now, they're not doing it anymore. But even Hoover, it was a lie because there was still coin... COINTELPRO, which is counterintelligence programs that were directed against not just the not just the Black Panthers, which is what's well known, not just the civil rights, you know, and, and Martin Luther King and, and the Southern Christian Leadership Council, but also the Ku Klux Klan, the anti-war movement. There was a list of sort of domestic radicals. And it, in my view, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, Dr. Naftali, but I believe that this is a total product of who J. Edgar Hoover, who was born in 1895, makes his name in the Palmer raids and becomes sort of the, the official, the person that he is in the first Red Scare, when th the country is obsessed and paranoid about anarchists and the first wave. So it's like the 60s are a natural for him. So Hoover is doing this stuff. And guess what? It turns out Lyndon Baines Johnson, also very interested in this kind of stuff as well, Lyndon Johnson at one point told told Hoover to, you know, go after other Democrats who he thought might be working with communists, all kinds of stuff that was outrageous in the 1960s. So can you just tell me what was the status of the warrantless eavesdropping, the black bag jobs? Hoover said he ended them and then he started doing them again. Or like what 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 happened there? Well, let's let's talk about warrantless wiretapping. So, OK, the. To the extent that the Supreme Court weighed in on this issue before the 60s, presidents believed that their responsibilities as commander-in-chief permitted them, through their attorneys general, to authorize wiretapping for national security reasons without... Right. Like, without a court, like without getting a court. like the code, like getting the code book from a, from a yeah. foreign embassy that, or something. That, right. and, and the... Justice Department believed that it did not need a court's war a warrant, a court warrant to surveil mobsters. In the 1960s, the Supreme Court begins the process of re-examining this and begins to put limitations on the use of wiretaps domestically. And Congress, the, it's a crime bill of, I think, 68, maybe it's 66. But that crime bill requires warrants for domestic criminal investigations. It does not, however, talk about national security investigations. And so it was legal for the Attorney General of the United States to authorize an FBI wiretap for national security purposes without letting any court know. It was, mm -hmm. a, it was legal. And that's not changed until the... Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. Now, 
Well, wait, but there were, there were more court rulings that, well, that, that outlawed court ruling, it, right? Sorry, my, my mistake. There was a court ruling yeah. that I believe because of Mort Halpern's case in 74, 73, 74. But there was one in 72 that was the def- Minister of Defense for the White Panthers, was that where they revealed, okay. they revealed that he was, he was surveilled by the government, even though the government said, you can't say this. And they said that, and then that, that sort of sets it but down. The, yeah. the, but Hoover was dead. Right. However, Hoover, seeing the, the direction that, that the court was going into in the 60s, began to push back at requests. He did them still. For example, the, you had a series of warrantless wiretaps against journalists and members of the administration that, that, that Kissinger was, I think, the, the person who signed off on them. But I mean, it was, it was John Mitchell who had to request them and Nixon knew about them. And those occurred between 1969 and 1971. And the Nixon administration pulls the plug on those because it's anticipating that there's going to be a change in the Supreme Court's view of national security wiretaps. So they, that whole wiretapping program ends in 1971. Hoover does this because he's the government, you know, Nixon says he has to do it. But Hoover has already been telegraphing that he is unwilling to take risks. And so... Mm -hmm. Breaking into foreign embassies, for example, which is something that the FBI started to do in World War II. But we, you know, it's, it's pub- that's public information. And, and then you have the, the, church, the church committee, which investigates this. The FBI in the mid-60s, Hoover starts to say, we don't, we don't want to do this anymore. And it's clear that Hoover is worried about the reputation of the FBI because the public seems to be redefining what it believes privacy to be. And, mm. and he doesn't want to be, because one of the things about Hoover, it's so important, is that Hoover thought he had this huge public support. And he spent a lot of time finding ways to really develop that public support, whether it was through- Yeah, by manipulating the media. Media and you know supporting something, a movie called The FBI Story, and, and later- the, the show FBI. FBI with Ephraim Symbolist Jr. Yeah. And so Hoover, Hoover had this sense. Now, now what, why did he care? Because Hoover wanted to die in the job. And the, oh, yeah. a, as a civil servant, he was supposed to retire. And Congress kept shifting the rules for him, but they had to pass laws to allow him to stay in his job because he didn't retire at 60. He doesn't retire at 70. And so, Hoover's main concern was to stay director. That was his principle. That was the goal of his life. As regards the Pomerades, I would, I would say that what's really amazing is the, the negative effect that the Pomerades had on Hoover and the FBI. The Bureau of Investigation yeah. was called before it was the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The U.S. government after the, realized after the Pomerades the great mistake it had made and the Coolidge administration. I know at first you have Harding, but Harding doesn't, he dies in office. Harding is uh, totally corrupt and his attorney general is and, and corrupt. Who, and, but yeah. The Coolidge administration makes it really hard to authorize wiretaps. There is a sense that this is in the 20s, that the U.S. government should not do what it did in the Pomerades, that people's, people's civil rights were violated 
And Hoover yeah. absorbs that. Oh, yeah, the U.S. government, and that's why the U.S. government, for example, doesn't have a counter-espionage operation. That's when the U.S. government shuts down, it shuts down its, its co-breaking, a civilian co-breaking yeah. operation, and the State Department closes it down. The military continues it, thank goodness. But in any case, in the 20s, Republican lawmakers and policymakers really wanted to limit the use of, of wiretapping. And, and, it's, and it's really Franklin Roosevelt who brings it back. It's mm. Roosevelt who goes to Hoover and says to Hoover, you've got to create a counter-espionage operation. You, you, you need one. The FBI, you know, the United States was the only major power in the world that did not have a serious counter-espionage capability in the 1930s. And right. it's in 1936, FDR goes to Hoover and says, I want you to work against Soviet agents. It's FDR. Right. And then- And, and, then, and, no, and Nazi, and then when is he, Nazis, he gets the but, same thing for, right. for the Nazis. And then finally the US, right. the, the FBI does not create its first class of counter-espionage agents are trained at Quantico only in 1938. Okay. So, so Hoover's has a very rudimentary understanding of spies and wiretapping. Now, in World War II, he's going to develop a much bigger sense of it, and certainly in the Cold War. But actually, the thing about Hoover is he's very adaptable to what his political mentors need. And, and one thing about Hoover is that my view, at least it's my understanding of his relationship with the Kennedys, is that Hoover kissed up and kicked down. That right. Hoover, because his most important goal was to stay in office. And he, and he, and he, so it was very important for him to service every president, to figure out what their secrets were and to say, and to make clear to them that he would protect them and to be willing always to protect presidents always be on the front line of protecting them. And Hoover... Okay, that- I want to I get to that, but, but I, I want to just push back on one thing. Sure. And this is, again, me as a journalist, as an amateur, not as an historian, but a fan of history, as Dan Carlin likes to say. So I'm reading this stuff, and here's what sticks out to me. Hoover is a paranoid maniac. He thinks that Felix Frankfurter is like a public enemy, he doesn't understand the difference between somebody who is like a, an ACLU type civil libertarian and an actual communist subversive. And his entire career, he, he kind of is constantly like, I don't know. I mean, we see it in the 60s where he's like, oh, wait a second. I get to uh, go after like domestic radicals again. And he's eager to go after domestic radicals. And I mean, like a lot has been said and a lot of work has been done. There's a new biography coming out from that woman at Yale on Hoover, which I can't wait to read. But what? Yeah. And I'm sure it's going to be incredible. So, I mean, and she found the, the actual poison pen letter to Martin Luther King. And, you know, there is the racism of Hoover as well. But I'm just saying, I think that Hoover is one of these guys who in the 20th century, he's sort of he's born right before the 20th century. He's looking around and he says, you know what? There are all these really dangerous ideas and all these Americans are trying to undermine us. And it stays with him the whole time, even though I agree with you. He is also a president pleaser. He's somebody who is always happy to kind of provide not just counsel, but like secret intelligence useful intelligence, something that will put him in favor of all these presidents that he serves, even the ones that don't trust him, like Harry Truman, he's always looking to try to work with them and and and, and get in good. 
Yeah, I well, there's no question, and 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 Webgage is going to do a great. Hoover's a Hoover is a he's he's a he's a racist, and and he is paranoid. But I think it's important not to absolve presidents of their responsibility. Oh yeah, bringing them in. Yeah, I just it's just again, I my argument is that to understand not all of the misdeeds by the U.S. intelligence community, but most of them, you have to look at the White House. I think it's not, it's, yeah. it's just not accurate to assume- Well, this goes back to your, your, your anti-deep state, arg your anti -deep state yeah, because, argument, which is yes, that I think, if you really want to know where the abuses come from, they come because it's not because Hoover on his own decided, well, I want to right. set up Pro against American radicals. It's because Lyndon Johnson and others asked him to do that. Exactly. And, and, and what Hoover right. was the master at is that he understood the amorality of the Washington community. And so he, it gave him power and he protected them. I mean, you know, he, he protected members of Congress, you know, uh, who were with prostitutes. He protect, I mean, he, uh, he people would say, ah, oh, he blackmailed, but it was, he was, there was a, the Washington community was, was so amoral that it, it gave him many opportunities to be useful. And, and it's a very sad thing because the implications for the country were very serious that this man who was so useful to so many presidents and so many senators uh, was such an awful human being. And so he got to act on some of his worst instincts because he was so useful to presidents. In the end, presidents could have fired him. Now, mm -hmm. even Nixon felt he couldn't. So it's what's interesting is that even at the end, Nixon came as close as anyone, though, close right? as anyone. And and Nixon and did we talk a little bit about that? Nixon came so close, and then he chickened out in a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him, right? Well, the Nixon. Well, the thing about Nixon is that he hated confrontation. Again, another difference from Trump. President Trump, when he got, you know, in his first and impeachment he goes out and he, he uses rallies to defend himself. Richard Nixon actually receded into his, into the residence. He disappeared as right. much as he could. Nixon was, a, was more of an introvert. He didn't, he actually got tired in a conference, in a direct personal confrontation. He, it exhausted him. It, some people get fired up and he didn't. Yeah. It's the opposite. So the, he didn't like to fire people. And by the way, it puts him in good stead. J John Kennedy, didn't like to fire people. He, he he fired his secretary a number of times, and she would just come back to work. And and the, the story about how George Herbert Walker Bush fired John Sununu. He didn't. He fired him through George W. Bush. You know, presidents don't like these sorts of things. So Nixon wasn't unusual not wanting to fire someone in person, but he really didn't like that. He got other people to fire. And and they tried. Oh my God! On the tapes, you you actually feel some. Some you feel for these people because they were trying to figure out well, how do you get rid of of Hoover, and they thought well, we're going to give him a medal. Let's give him a medal, and then you know <laughs> when he turned, we'll give him a medal. We'll have a big ceremony, and it doesn't work. He's not. You know, he's going to go back to work. He's he's not going to leave. So so well. This is how Nick, nuts. Like Nixon, Nixon was so nuts yeah. that he wanted to replace Hoover with a guy by the name of Bill Sullivan, who was oh, the longtime yeah. director of intelligence. And if there's anybody more paranoid and lunatic than Hoover, it's Bill Sullivan. He's the author probably of that famous poison pen letter to Martin Luther King, which exposed his adultery, but also told him to go kill him, to commit suicide. 
and like Sullivan, even worse, even like more unstable than Hoover. Those are the guys. That's the that's who the Hoover. That's the what the Nixon White House originally wanted, right? Well, absolutely. Oh, and and th- that gets to uh, the story of the of the Houston plan, which I know you wanted to, yeah wanted to get to at some point. So the intelligence community had been looking at the issue of outside assistance or funding or training for the for dissent for the student movement in this country the anti-war movement and two presidents had been interested in this lbj is the first nixon's the second and the intelligence community had reported to lbj there is no reason to believe that the student movement in this country is anything but self-directed and a product of our domestic politics yes the Cubans have trained a few people and yes, the Soviets are interested, but they're not providing enough funding to make a difference. And it's wrong to think of this movement as anything but America. And LBJ didn't like that. He didn't believe it. He thought it was a mistake and then wanted more data. And Nixon is the same. Nixon gets that he comes to office and he's one of the first things he does. He says, I want the truth about the role that Moscow and Havana are playing. <laughs> and right, right. And again, the intelligence community says, Mr. President, we've looked at this and, you know, sorry, it's just not so. <laughs> and right. Nevertheless, there, there are people in the intelligence community who do feel that, that, that not enough risks have been taken to answer this question and that there, that there should be more domestic operations, that, that there are certain restraints that should be lifted. And they coalesce and form this, this committee. And the, the note taker is a guy, is a young staffer named Tom Houston. And what they're looking at is ways to improve U.S. surveillance and counterespionage to develop more information about foreign sources of dissent and foreign intelligence op- operations in general in the country. And they put together a plan that would have uh, re- eliminated some of the restrictions, the self-imposed restrictions that the FBI put on itself of breaking into foreign embassies and the like. That Hoover put on himself, right? Re-engaged, right. would have re-engaged the U.S. military in domestic surveillance because the U.S. military's role in domestic surveillance goes back to the early 20th century where the army right. had spies in, in the United States. Now, primarily on bases, but they were collecting. But this is like, isn't this like after like the, what is it? The, the March on Washington of the World War One veterans, right? And they had to. Yes, absolutely. So, so you. And they, because that was, well, that was a real thing. I mean, MacArthur used a lot of force to break them up, but that was a problem. But in the 60s, they were moving away from that. Well, this group, right. which representatives of all the agencies wanted to re-engage the military right. intelligence in collecting information certainly on disloyalty in the army and, and, and Navy. Okay. So By this- the way, which was a problem in a conscripted army fighting a, a very unpopular war where lots of people were dying. There were, was fragging. There was all kinds of stuff that was really bad. There was a lot of AWOL. That, okay. But, but well, but there, there are ways to do that that are still, um, I, I, I'm not defending part, the Houston which, plan which by any sense. I just want to give, Fourth Amendment. let's paint the picture. Yeah, America wasn't, Peaches and cream in 1970 no, well, or 1971. Well, no, no. I mean, I, I forgot the number, but but there were many yeah. bomb bombings in 1970, oh, yeah. 71 and, and bomb threats. So, the, oh, absolutely. Okay. So, but you yeah. had this group that want to do this and they put together a plan. Now it's not, it's, it, 
again, the, the person who's the sort of coordinator is Tom Houston, but to say it's Tom Houston's idea is not fair to Tom Houston. Comes from right. NSA, comes from the CIA, comes the FBI. Okay. The plan comes gets probably from Mark Felt, right? Who's no, it comes from Sullivan. Right, it comes from Sullivan, right? Right, exactly. It comes Sullivan. From Sullivan. Now that's why bit. I brought this up because of your right, your, right, your right. Yeah, Sullivan. Yeah. Sullivan is one of those who's arguing that FBI Director Hoover's getting soft. He's old. All right, he's not willing right. to take the risks anymore. This is not the same Hoover who brought down Dillinger. You know? Okay, so. So they, they pull together this and, okay, it gets back to Hoover because even though Sullivan is, uh, you know, on the bleeding edge of this thing, he still has to go back to the director and yeah. <laughs> goes back to the director and Hoover hates it. He hates this plan. Hires him, yeah. And, and, and Hoover calls up Mitchell. And by the way, Nixon had approved the plan. He was okay with right. Nixon. And he's and Hoover says to John Mitchell, who's the attorney general, says, I, I won't support this. What do you mean? Oh, my God. J. Edgar Hoover's not going to support this. If something's not supported by J. Edgar Hoover in that era, it's dead in Congress. Because if Congress finds out about it, he had so many allies among Southern Democrats. Right. That that they they and they were all chairs because of the because of the power. First of all, the Democratic Party is the majority party is the majority party, with one exception for for years after the you know, the Great Depression, starting in the Great Depression. And, 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 and all of these chairs, are, they were called chairmen at the time, these guys are, for the most part, Southern Democrats. And most of them, not all of them, were segregationists. And Hoover and they got along culturally just fine. And they were hard-edged anti-communists. Also, and Hoover held all their secrets. He held all these, their these secrets. These were like this... Well, These were the same guys who like went to the Dominican Republic under Trujillo and, and like went to these and, sex and, parties and, 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 and Trujillo was, 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 you know, put the tree. They were using a, that government rest house, vacation. Incredible. House. And, and, and by the way, Hoover's like up to his neck and all this stuff. Well, he's in, protecting in that, all these guys. No, I mean, yeah, exactly. Now this, by the way, this is the era when members of Congress, there were no rules about gifts and conflict of interest and ethics requirements. Oh, yeah. So in any case, a lot of, of members, really powerful members of Congress took advantage of this, of the whole, of these, of the, the sort of gray area and who were protected. Anyway, so Nixon finds out from Mitchell that Hoover's against this. Well, it's dead then. There's no way Nixon's going to go ahead, which gives you a sense of Hoover's- His power. Power. That Hoover could stop an abuse of power. And right, I mean, oh, that this this would have been an extension of the su surveillance state at a time when the courts and Congress were moving in a different direction. The American people that's were right. in a direction. That's why this matters. Some of what they wanted yeah. to do had been done in the 1940s and 1950s, and no one cared. But America's mores had changed. The country was changing for all kinds of reasons beyond the scope right. of our conversation today. And whatever you want to say about Hoover, he was he had his ear to the ground well, till sure. his dying day. Because he understood he, it, he, right. his antennae, again, I'm, it, it's not a defense of Hoover, bad guy. No, but the thing about bad Hoover guy. is he is a politico. He, it's right. all about politics. And for him, he realized America was not the same as it had been in 1951. Right. Okay. Now I want to end on this because we started the conversation on Watergate and this gets to Watergate. It's a, it, and we talked about it right before the show, but I want to pose it again. 
I think you're generally right that if you want to talk about abuses that of abuses in the intelligence community, abuses of the FBI, you have to start with you can't leave out the presidents because it's often at the behest of, but particularly with the CIA too, because of those close personal relationships. And that's the way it works. However, one could argue, as I think some smarter conservatives have over the years in the last fifty years, that you know Mark Felt, who was deep throat. And maybe Mark Felt isn't the linchpin to, and I, I, I take your interpretation, I think that's important to have all of the other stuff about the Senate committee, but he plays a, an important role in undermining the, 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 the pre President Nixon and his administration in the second term, and especially by having this relationship with Bob, Bob Woodward and keying him into how the FBI's actual investigation is going as well. And, you know, let, let's do a thought experiment. Maybe it isn't. Suppose we had a, a a senior FBI official leaking an investigation into a president that's widely admired, like a an Obama or something like that. You know, there is a danger there as well if you have a very very powerful domestic security agency like the FBI that then also plays at this high level of presidential politics, so to speak, and influences politics in that kind of way as well no yes okay um Talk, let's, can we, can we I mean, is there something that we just, should get out of that well just to just say that yeah. one of the lessons for the fbi was that it needed to be as nonpartisan and apolitical as possible now human beings have a hard time being apolitical nonpartisan, yeah. but institutions can actually get closer to it than human beings Institutions are collections of human beings. I'm not talking in riddles here, but I'm just trying to say that that when, when we talk about an institution that is trying to be apolitical, we're, we also should be realistic about the fact that it right. has leads as human beings and they have passions and preferences. But the, the, the FBI has sought, as a reaction to the Hoover period, to shed its reputation of being highly political. And that's why the, the FBI director is supposed to be in office for 10 years, maybe 12, not 10, I guess, and it could be extended. Because of course, generally speaking, that means you're gonna work for presidents of, of both parties eventually. Yeah. And the goal is not to re be removing an FBI director with a new president, because it's the same with the, F with the CIA. I mean, the CIA, there is sort of an attempt to make the CIA director also a nonpartisan position. In any case, why? Because you want people from both sides of the aisle and the American people, regardless of whom they voted for, to trust the FBI. And the FBI right. had lost the trust of so many Americans as a result of the, the end game of the Hoover years, Watergate and Vietnam. And Well, Watergate, though, we didn't learn well, until well, 2005 well, that... Yeah, you didn't. But, but I mean, but, but the point is that but what happens with Watergate is that Americans lose their trust in government in general, which, and the FBI is part of the government. Nobody blames the FBI for, for Watergate, although there would be, you know, years later, sort of conspiracy theories about how the U.S. Intelligence Committee tried to undo, undo Nixon. I mean, in a concerted way, as opposed to individuals here and there. Hmm. But the, the question we all should ask ourselves is what, what we expect of our constitutional officers. And if they see something they don't like, which they think mm. is contrary, not to their preferred policy, because by the way, there's never really 
a justification for that, for that. But if you see something that you think threatens the very fabric of the country and our, being our constitution, and by the way, that's the oath you take. You take it to a constitution, to our constitution, not an oath to the president. What do you expect them to do? And that's why we have whistleblower laws. Now why we have inspectors general and we have yeah, and, and house we have, permanent select committees. And but, but it would be naive, and neither of us is naive, to think that people don't leak because leaking has been part of the Washington world from the beginning. I mean, it goes right back to Washington. Of course. So, but, but what we really want is institutions we can count on because if they become politicized, they lose the respect of the other side. And if they lose the respect of the other side, then they're no longer effective. And if they're no longer effective and they're a law enforcement agency, then our laws are no longer effective. Well, are we? And well, then gets, let's uh, natural question. If you look at the Gallup polling, and we may disagree with this, I haven't actually talked to you about this because I am very critical right now of the FBI. Are we there now with the FBI where it's like one party thinks the FBI is legitimate and the another party doesn't? Well, you know, I, I was in the, I worked for the National Archives for, for five years and four of them I was head of the Nixon Library. And I, I, I can tell you that the National Archives had no alternative. It's a very, it's very serious if classified information is outside. There are special areas for classified information. The National Archives is, is the designated, it's the authority that's it's responsible for presidential materials. And these were classified presidential materials that were outside of the control of the National, of the National Archives, which is by law responsible for them. They had no alternative but to go to their inspector general. And their inspector general had no alternative but to go to the DOJ. And the DOJ had to investigate who had access to these documents. They're highly classified. And that investigation, when it's done by the DOJ, is done by the FBI. So what I'm not sure where the Well, I'm not listen, I think I, if you sure. I think you might be right on that, but I think if you take a longer view, uh I mean, come on. I mean, the the FBI, especially under Jim Comey, you know, like pursued way past when they had lots of information, the theory of Russian collusion. It obsessed the country. It weakened Trump. I'm not a Trump fan, but I just think that you can look at that. You can look at the FBI just in general, like and some of it is like the authorities they got since 9-11, where it's like they're able to in the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping case that that looked to me like there were more FBI assets than actual domestic terrorists in that example. And we saw that come out in the court case. You can go through a list of things where there are all kinds of things that the FBI did. There are all kinds of leaks that come out of ongoing investigations that tend to be Trump allies as opposed to other kinds of things. I think that there is a more than fair argument that I think Republicans ha can have or fair-minded people can have that there's something very wrong right now with the FBI, even if we leave aside the Mar-a-Lago stuff, which we're still learning about. But I'm conceding to you that, you know, this notion that Trump has that he can take whatever he wants is bananas. So I'm not, you know, that, I don't think there's any legal theory there. But if you take a longer look, the FBI, especially when you look at it like, I mean, if it's sort of like you're going to shoot for the king. I mean, like when the Comey announces an on, the, when he announces that ongoing investigation into Trump, campaign possible conspiracy with Russia. At that moment, we now know from inspectors general and other kinds of oversight that they pretty much understood that there really wasn't anything to that. 
And you have to ask yourself, well, why was Comey doing this kind of thing? Yeah, I, I find Comey is such an interesting historical figure. He's very much alive. And, but yes, but because in the summer of 2016, he managed to piss off both sides, but not at the same True. time. And I have to say, I don't know the man, but watching him, having studied the Hoover period, and the and then I, I wrote a, a book about counterterrorism, you know, uh, up to nine eleven. So I had looked at how the FBI and the CIA had managed this. So I knew something and had interviewed a few FBI FBI directors. So their effort to stay above the fray, and I and I watched Comey in twenty sixteen. I'm animated by by the history of the Hoover years, trying to do the opposite. Mm. Fearful, yeah, of and and getting it and it's blowing up in his face. I mean, literally blowing up in his face. Now, one could say it's because of Comey's own personality and he likes attention, but also I think he was, you know, the 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 his statement about Hillary Clinton. He just went too far, and it shouldn't have been the FBI that made that statement. But if you look at his handling of the Clinton investigation, the email investigation, he was desperately trying not to get involved in the election, right? And then he makes a yeah. promise to Congress that he will let them know if he reopens it. Yeah, And he had to because of Anthony Weiner's laptop, which of course is one of those, you know, one of those accidental moments in history that you can't even predict. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, 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 but let me ask you, Eli, who leaked mm. his letter to Congress, it wasn't Comey. When Comey sends a letter to Congress saying we have reopened the yeah. uh, investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails because he had to, because they had, because there was this this laptop and there were people here in New York who I believe were talking to Rudy Giuliani about this, and yep. and but that gets leaked by Congress. I'm not okay. So can I can I push back? I want to jump quickly yeah. to the to the rest okay. of the business. This was, there's no doubt in my mind that people jump to collusion, which is not a legal term anyway, sure. very fast. I, 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 I did a lot of television and, and maybe I slipped up. I hope not. I mean, I make mistakes. <laughs> I'm very imperfect, but I, I think I tried not to because I, because I've studied intelligence, you know, intelligence history. And, and for me, Trump was a very bad, would have been a very bad asset. But there, the problem for the FBI and is that, is that a lot of the people around Trump were acting in ways that suggested they had a secret about Russia. Now that, in our country, you have protections, Fourth Amendment protections. Yep. So I'm not suggesting that the FBI forget about them. But this became a counter-espionage investigation. That's what this was. And that's amazing, but understandable because time and again, the Trump campaign and the, and president, president elect Trump himself kept denying what the intelligence community had gathered about Russian intervention in the election. Now I can make the argument that it's because Trump, Trump is not a sophisticated thinker. He couldn't separate these two ideas. So for him, if you if you agreed that the Russians were involved in the election, 
it was the same as saying he did not win legitimately. And those two ideas shouldn't be linked. The, you know, foreign governments have participated and tried to shape American public opinion since the 1940s. But that doesn't mean that the outcome of our elections are, our outcomes are illegitimate. But Trump couldn't separate the two. But he acted constantly as if he In didn't fairness, leave. there were a lot of Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, after she conceded, who also did not weren't able to make that distinction either, which okay, is to say I'm not, that I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, but OK, I mean, no, no. But I, I, I take your point. Listen, Trump's a maniac. My issue with the FBI is that there were a number of things that we were assured by the FBI, not just by Comey, but by, you know, by the institution that turned out to be bullshit. And I'll just give you an example. They denied the Democrats themselves did a counter memo to the so-called Devin Nunes memo that denied that they'd used this opposition research in a FISA warrant that they had never verified. And then we find out that not only had they used it, that they wouldn't have sought the warrant at all if had it not been for this politically motivated, which turned out to be crap, and which then you know becomes its own thing with as known as a steel dossier. Yeah. I'll give you another example. And this is a minor thing. It's a minor thing, but I think it's important. You know, there was a there was a mini thing that nobody remembers. I, I wrote a little bit about it at the time, which was about unmasking Michael Flynn's name when the story of his conversation with the Russian ambassador in the transition period leaked. Okay, so it turns out that his name was not unmasked. Why wasn't it unmasked? Because somebody at the FBI, and we think it's probably Comey, decided to distribute far and wide a transcript of the conversation without redacting Michael Flynn's name when he wasn't under any kind of surveillance warrant. Now, is that the same as, you know, Hoover and the black bag jobs and, you know, trampling on the Fourth Amendment rights of every anti-war protester? No, it's not. I'm not suggesting it is. However, it, I think, reflected a mentality with Comey where he said he felt shame that his statements and handling of the email probe may have cost Hillary Clinton the election, and so that he decided to double back as soon as Trump won in the other direction. And that, to me, was, it, it ended up further diminishing the credibility of the FBI. And then, you know, there's lots of things that have nothing to do with Trump where the FBI, we see time and again, you know, that they're either deceiving the oversight committees in Congress. We see this huge scandal out of the, the FISA stuff where it wasn't just Carter Page. There was a serial, like just ignoring these procedures that were created 25 years ago to ensure the accuracy of stuff to the surveillance court. It seems that there's a kind of a pattern sometimes with the institution is what I'm trying to get at. And so to me, I'm at least I'm not surprised that when you look at the latest polls from Gallup, it's something like only 22 percent of Republicans have faith in the integrity of the FBI, whereas it's about 66 percent of the Democrats. And that is the sort of nightmare scenario that I think that Hoover was always trying to avoid, that he understood that the bureau had to have that, that Democratic legitimacy. And I'm not entirely sure it does today. Well, it is a problem for the country. It's the FBI does not have legitimacy yeah. because it's a law enforcement agency and it, it has to have it because it is, the FBI depends on the, the assistance of, of citizens. I mean, not only does it depend on local law enforcement, but it also depends on, on, on patriot, patriotic citizens giving them information for the common good. And if it's not, if one political party doesn't believe in it anymore, there's a problem. 
you know, one of yeah. the, one of my concerns is that that political party will try to appease its core by politicizing the FBI in the other direction. Okay, it's not so good. That's, the FBI clearly don't want that. No, no, but 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 that they'll they'll want that. But I know you're being sarcastic. The yeah. point is, the point is that the answer, if you think the FBI is overly politicized. It, the answer is not to politicize it in the other direction, but but I think we've got a much deeper problem in this country, which is that a lot of Americans don't think it's possible for any government institution to be apolitical, and they believe every one of them is corrupt. And and look, making a statement that civil servants can actually be apolitical is not the same thing as saying big government is a good thing. I'd like to disentangle these two issues. Sure, big government. We can all debate about it, and and I, I'm not making an argument for big government, but I am saying the government is not always bad, and 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 you can have good people doing the right thing, right? Which is basically following the law and the constitution. I'm not saying the right thing is being yeah. liberal, conservative. Okay, no, no, I well, I know what you mean. Okay, and and but I believe that most Americans don't believe that's possible. I believe that most Americans think that everybody comes in with a political agenda, and then they take the the institution and they warp it in that political direction. So we've lost the sense that you can have people go and work for the common good. And that is, I mean, yes, the discussion of the FBI is a subsection. It's a subset of the, that, that, that complete story. But the complete story is a disaster for our country because it's part of the inability of Americans now to share the same database. People not wanting to admit certain facts and saying, well, mm. those are, but, but it's, you can't admit certain facts. You can't admit the existence of people who work for both sides. It's all the, it's all of a piece. And it's the product of the tribalism in our country right now. I'm afraid. Do you believe that this constitutes what Jürgen Habermas would call a legitimation crisis? One of the things I learned in, in grad school was how impenetrable Jürgen Habermas was. <laughs> and I am Delightful. I would be shocked if I really understood any particular concept of Jürgen Habermas, to be honest. So I think I can simplify it. I'm not trying to claim to be a Jürgen Habermas expert, but I think that basically what he meant by legitimation crisis is that if you have an institution in the government and people don't think that that institution can do what its function is, and they don't believe that it's like if it's if they're supposed to be like neutral arbiters of the you know law enforcement, but everybody thinks they're partisan, then no one then they don't have legitimacy anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, look, if everybody admit just admitted to themselves that no institution is perfect and that seeking neutrality is a, it's an ongoing process and they're going to make mistakes on one side or the other, but you try to course correct, then I think you can maintain the legitimacy of institutions. But if but if people have this. Um, this highly inflexible view of institutions, they're either with me or against me, then the institution has lost its legitimacy. And I think- Fair enough. We, I think we face that now. Look, there was a time when you could poll Americans about what they thought of the president of the United States. And even if they didn't vote for that president, they would respect the president. And, and we know this because you could disaggregate the Gallup polls from the 50s and 60s to see what Republicans and Democrats were thinking right. of their president. And guess what? Republicans thought JFK was good and Democrats thought he was good. And Democrats thought- That's because JFK Eisenhower. was like a neocon. Was like, anyway. But JF, okay, but, <laughs> but, but, but Democrats liked Joe. Eisenhower. Fair, fair enough. No, I know that. That's, that is true, yeah. We'll talk about that another day. But, 
But the point was that Americans could somehow in their own mind disentangle the, the right. party president from the presidency. That's gone. Now, if you look at, at, at trust in government, Republicans tend to trust government when a Republican is president and Democrats tend to trust government when a Democrat is president. And when, when the opposite party is in the White House, that, that group doesn't trust government anymore. And that, okay, okay. That's, Counterpoint, Tim. Counterpoint. When in this period of high trust in the government, a guy by the name of J. Edgar Hoover was running roughshod all over our constitutional rights. Well, yeah. Was, I'm not saying, by the way, that's, I, that's, that's a little bit of a, like a debater's point. I, I, I think I agree with you. It's a real problem that we right now have like what appears to be like we're like girding for a digital civil war. And people believe all kinds of loot, like conspiracy theories, like really crazy stuff on both sides about their political opponents. And it's really, really bad. On the other hand, when you have a super high trust society like that, it can also end up empowering, you know, paranoid, Absolutely. That was crazy. The of, like, wait, that's a period of Hoover. imperial presidency when you had yeah. presidents that were wiretapping people without court warrants. And yeah, it's perfectly legal. I'm not suggesting. Look, look, I, I'm, I, I'm always very wary of talking about golden ages. You know, sure. in my mind, most people b believe a golden age was ever was when they were in high school. And it really doesn't matter when they were in high school. That was always the golden age, right? We can talk about some golden ages, right? Yeah, we can talk about, we can always talk. About Republican most, Rome was better than the Roman Empire. Like, absolutely. Imperial Rome. Republican Rome was much better. Right. And, and, you know, Periclean Athens was amazing. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So. We had the Imperial the ancient Persians Persian. had a good run there with Xerxes and Cyrus. Well, it's a great, <laughs> I, my God, you know people forget about Xerxes, but Marathon, Marathon did him. Sure, <laughs> um, I love you, Tim Naftali. That's no, great. No, no, no. So listen, get back to our, our little little conversation about the Imperial Presidency. We do not, I hope, want to return to the Imperial Presidency of the fifties and sixties. Not at all. No. Um, or the social mores that maybe led to a false unity where you had gays in the closet and segregation absolutely. and all these other bad things. No, no, no. We In the 1950s, we don't want to return to that. We'd, and, and by the way, you know, when a lot of folks talk about bipartisanship in Congress, they're really pointing to a period of, 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 of the conservative coalition that was led by segregationists. You know, it was, it was yeah. South Democrats and Midwestern Republicans working together. No, I, I'm not suggesting any of those things. What I am saying, however, is that it is very hard to create consensus on key issues when you have so much mistrust of government. And let me, let me, let me close with this one example, which I think should be non, uncontroversial with you, my dear friend, Eli. In previous eras, the fact that in Congress you could get consensus on supporting a country like Ukraine that was, that had been attacked by an imperial power would yep. have created a national consensus. You would have found that Americans would have dropped their, dropped party as their principal identifier in supporting this national effort. It didn't happen this time. We do have in Congress a strong consensus in support of Ukraine, at least at the moment. But I wouldn't say that about outside of Washington. Yeah. And very, in, very influential people on television and the former president of the United States, 
they are not helping this particular consensus. And that's a product of the fact that so many Americans mistrust government and mistrust elites. And, right. and, and that's not healthy. So I, I'm not asking for, I, I did not want to return to the, the, the terror of the 50s consensus, I mean, in terms of the right. tension. But I, just because I don't want that doesn't mean I wouldn't like Americans to coalesce on the importance of, of helping Zelensky and Ukrainians fight Putin. Well, that is a great way to end it. Thank you so much for taking so much of your time. This was a really fun conversation. Thanks. I want to have you, you're, I'm going to have you back. We're going to talk more about the national security state. Um, anyway, and thanks so much for coming on. This was great. My pleasure, Eli. Thank you for inviting Thank you, Tim. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.